Housing, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I don't know why I didn't write a shorter intro phrase. (laughs) Why is my slogan so long? Why do I always feel like I'm drowning in water whenever I say it? There are too many words. It must be rectified. And yet, eh, professional writer can't edit to save my life. Anyway, I'm Carly Wiesel, if I didn't say that yet, and I voted at Universal City Walk. Like I said on Instagram, I did not intend to be this on brand. I really did not set out to vote at Universal City Walk. But the place I went to, I went to Hollywood Bowl, the iconic Hollywood Bowl, where you can vote. How cool! Their machines were down, so they sent us to City Walk. I really didn't intend to use my right and privilege to vote in the basement level of Jurassic Parking, not gonna lie. But it was transformed into this really nice semi-outdoor voting center, and it was great! I mean, if you're voting in LA, there's nothing to complain about. We are so privileged that many of us have cars, we're able to have access to the outdoors, the weather is nice, we are in a good situation and I recognize that. And I hope that everyone else who is voting regardless of how long you have to wait, because I've seen so many friends waiting so long this past weekend to early vote. I applaud you for doing it, and we thank you. Voting is great. It's a right and a privilege. And like I say, you can't complain about anything if you don't vote. So, huh. Now, voting wasn't in City Walk was in the City Walk garage, close enough. But afterwards, you know, I had to like dip into Universal City Walk just to see what was up. And it was, it was nice. I only really walked around. I did a lap, which was nice considering that I don't walk very much lately. But it was just kind of wild because I don't know if you remember, but I kind of spilled the beans on when Universal City Walk was opening. In professional terms, we call that reporting or getting a scoop. But spilling the beans sounds more fun and very on brand for this week before Halloween. And I, the last time I went, it was the first hour of the first day they had opened. Almost nobody was there. It was entirely empty. So to be somewhere where people were out and it was kind of bustling, not in a bad way, but there was just, you know, more people than one. It was, I don't know, it was nice. It was nice to get like a whiff of what it might be when these parks do reopen in California, whenever that is, however far away, whenever it is safe. But it was just, it was nice to do something that wasn't within the walls that are in my office, which I'm sure many of you can relate to. As you've probably noticed, this week is not a Halloween episode. We are not doing one. Halloween is approaching, and I am fully sticking my head in the sand. Only the sand is a seemingly bottomless bag of Reese's Holiday Assortment. I cannot stop eating those little white chocolate ghosts. That's my hobby now. I think I'm just going to take the L on Halloween and be real bummed. (laughs) And just cheer up once I can shove popcorn from Buena Vista Street into my pie hole come November. More on that in the news section. But I am endlessly getting ahead of myself today. I will hit the news shortly, but I did want to let you know and provide an update that our Facebook Foamily 5K, which I talked about on a standalone episode as well as last week, is officially wrapped. And together with the guidance and leadership of Melinda Welch, Welsh, I'm saying both Melinda, I'm saying both. I know we've talked about this I don't know which one is the juice. I don't know which time I did it well. So if I say both, I did it. Kelly Schumer and Meredith Miller, who spearheaded the entire thing, down to making the most meticulous organized spreadsheet of raffle giveaway prizes I've ever seen. If I had a company, I would hire them all immediately. It was exceptional, and I'm so thankful that I got to take part in it. We raised around $23,000 to benefit theme park employees, both for cast member pantry and second harvest food bank. Thank you all. If you have clicked to listen to this episode, you know what's happening this week. We have one interview, which rarely happens, but we only do it when the guest is super, super special, which is true this week. It's Scott Trowbridge. He's like the dad of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, as you'll hear about when we get to the interview. I'm so thrilled that he was able to come on and talk about some stuff that 
even in all of the interviews that I've I've done with him at every opening for Galaxy's Edge, at every preview, at every press event, there are a few things that I really wanted to dial in on, especially for this type of series, where we explore how things work in the theme parks and go a little deeper than you usually get to hear. I do want to let you know before we jump to news that you can sign up for my Patreon. It's new, it's fun, and I'm having a blast with it. For five bucks a month, you get a grab bag of shenanigans. And because this is the end of the month, there is a lot coming this week. So patrons, uh, buckle up for an excessive amount of bonus content. Hope you like my voice because you're going to be hearing it more than once this week. <laughs> Can't. Wait, let's get into news, and then let's talk to Scott about cool robot stuff. I mean, a portfolio creative executive from WDI spilling some secrets about Rise of the Resistance? You may not have trick-or-treating this year, but this one's gonna be sweet. The big news this week is that Buena Vista Street at Disney California Adventure will be reopening in November for shopping, Starbucks, and Disney snacks. Shops along the entry promenade will be open, along with Fiddler, Pfeiffer, and Practical Cafe, trolley treats for sweets, and food carts selling churros, popcorn, and ice cream, which I'm just going to take a leap and infer are Mickey bars. They're also opening up Carthay Circle Lounge with outdoor seating, as well as Smoke Jumpers Grill, allowing guests to get their first Disneyland park meal and iconic martinis in Manhattans in seven or so months. Over 200 cast members are said to be returning to work to staff Buena Vista Street, but it also must be said that some of the 28,000 cast members are still continuing to hear about layoffs, even this week. Truth be told, there is a lot more going on in California than just that. From Knott's Berry Farm encouraging its pass holders to contact the governor directly to encourage reopening of parks, to Disneyland's cryptic annual pass holder email, all the theme park news this week kind of intertwines with itself and goes quite deep. So if you want to catch up on everything that's happening there, I recommend reading my Sci-Fi Wire column from this week. It's an in-depth summary of what's been happening, both with California parks and state government, as well as arguments on both sides of reopening. And it's much more digestible than me receiving citing it out loud. The other most interesting news of the week for me personally is that the Morocco Pavilion at Epcot will now be operated by Disney, a scoop from Disney Food Blog that I am not going to make too many judgment calls about just yet. The change in ownership is happening soon, by the end of 2020, they reported, but I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there and frankly, think it might be for the best. And in a bit of style news, I was at CityWalk, as I mentioned, and they had the dopest 90s color block windbreaker. I might have to get it, if not just because Disney Style's new Bobble Bar collaboration, which features, oh my gosh, Christmassy, gingerbread Mickey earrings, Mickey as Santa, and a lot of other stuff that as a Jewish woman, I cannot wear. So sadly, that collection is not available to me, but it is to you. So don't miss it if you are as big of a fan as just hooking some heavy stuff onto your earlobes and hoping for the best. And one more bit of things you can buy news. Disneyland has this new popcorn box bucket. It is shaped like and looks like the vintage blue Disneyland popcorn boxes, but it's a reusable popcorn container. It is breaking me that I do not have one of these yet, and I definitely need to find a way to get one because it's as iconic as it gets. A popcorn in-joke that also holds popcorn? Kudos to them because... It's a straight-up dream. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to How Things Work Part 2, 
of three. This podcast series was intended to last only two episodes. But when Scott Trowbridge, portfolio creative executive at Walt Disney Imagineering, comes on the show and so graciously discusses everything I wanted to know, well, I had to extend it out to a full trio of episodes discussing how things work at our favorite theme parks. Last week, we talked about the Bourne Stunt-tacular, a true blend of onstage technology, stunts, and theatrics that took three years to create, and learned the magic of how an in-park Trolls character was painstakingly designed to fart real glitter. Today, we're going deep on specifics and technology behind what powers some of our favorite experiences. Specifically, the new ride functionalities and audio animatronics, or AAs, as we'll sometimes call them, the robot-like figures you see within Disney attractions that continue to get better and better, more and more realistic as time moves forward. Many of us are familiar with the term audio animatronic, or at least their presence inside Disney attractions. But beyond that, it gets a little hazy. As a reporter, it's always been part of my job to break these words and languages and detail used by the experts into something that makes sense, both for you and for me. I've written about audio animatronics for years, but I still don't know the specific detail, not so much of how they work, but how far the technology has come since they were first invented, or even within the past few years. And that's where Scott Trowbridge comes in. He oversaw the entirety of the creation of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which makes him the best person to ask these types of questions. This is a very exciting interview because... While I've reported extensively on all aspects of Galaxy's Edge, I've never really had the opportunity to go a little deeper into these seemingly common ideas that are way more nuanced than I can ever typically share publicly. Scott basically gave me a one-day free crash course on everything I didn't know about A1000s, the newest form of audio animatronics used within the land for figures like Hondo Onaka in the pre-show for Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, and Kylo Ren in Star Wars Rise of the Resistance. But that's not all. Scott and I also discussed one of the most secretive, rarely detailed ride functionalities of Star Wars Rise of the Resistance. And no, it's not the one you're thinking of. Before I say too much, I am keenly aware that many, many theme park fans have not yet been able to ride this new innovative Disney attraction, either because of the pandemic or due to the fact that it is still extremely tricky to get on board, even if you're in Disney's Hollywood Studios with your phone pulled up, ready to get a boarding pass. There will be spoilers for this attraction within this episode, but it'll be in the second half of our interview. I will also be cutting in to give you ample warning, so you will not accidentally be spoiled. I promise. I'll also leave a time code in the show notes so that you can come back and listen to how one of the more unique parts of the ride works after you've been on it. I don't want to keep you from this interview any longer because it's essentially Star Wars school and y'all, class is in session. So without further ado, let's learn about how audio animatronics and innovative ride technologies are made. Thank you so much for coming on Very Amusing. It's I'm delightful very excited to, to be have here. you. I know. I feel like for a while, every four months, I'd be talking to you about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, and there's been a, a big lull this year. Yeah, it turns out. Yeah, I heard something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah weird. We've just been in our houses for a very Hashtag long time. 2020. <laughs> so this is the How Things Work episode. We kind of discuss how everything is made and some secrets of the trade. So Ooh. naturally, you're the perfect person to talk to about Galaxy's Edge. I'm all ears. And I'd love to start with the audio animatronics within the land. Yeah. So a lot of us know like the, the A1000 model is highly advanced, highly technical. But for a regular fan, it's not really clear what that means. So are you able to explain what the difference is between that and your run-of-the-mill AA? Sure. I think, you know, and it's not terribly surprising that people wouldn't necessarily know what the differences are because that's something that, you know, generally we try to kind of put that technology, you know, in the service of story and in the service of the guest experience and not quite so much talk about it. But, you know, knowing that this is the how things are done episode, uh, let's talk about that. So the real difference between the our current generation of A1000 figures versus previous generations and even going all the way back to the original ones is really about a couple of things. One, the level of control and fidelity, the level of repeatability 
and the lifelike nature with which we can control what are in essence robotics, right? And, and, and bring them to life so they feel alive. They feel like they're giving a performance. They're not just kind of mechanically moving through a series of actions. The, the, real, the real breakthroughs in that are both in the software side of things, the control software side of things, but also in the way we move things. You know, if you went back in time, the only way to kind of get the real power that was necessary to move the, you know, think of an arm, right? It, you know, it, it has a, you know, it's a pretty small thing, maybe three or four inches in diameter. But when we, in the old school uh, way of doing animatronics, it was very heavy. It was hard to move. It had a very thick rubberized skin on it that was, you know, it was very, very hard to move. But the only way to kind of have enough power to move those things uh, fluidly was using hydraulics, which is, you know, basically a kind of a, a very, a, a great way to remote the power source from the thing you want to move because it uses hydraulic pressure, literally uh, hoses, very, very, very strong hoses filled with oil under immense pressure. Um, and that was the only way to kind of like get that, get that level of, um, of, of real, of that amount of energy down inside where we wanted it, which, you know, if you think about a human figure, that might mean running that hose, you know, from some very, very loud um, pump system that's usually outdoors somewhere, all the way through a building, all the way up through some kind of pedestal, up through a leg, up through a torso, up through a shoulder, down to, you know, through an elbow, down to a hand. Very complex, takes up a lot of space, generates a lot of heat, and, and really limits what you can do. But our our predecessors at Imagineering were just masters at making that, you know, uh, bringing as much, uh, you know, in, innovation to that as they possibly could. Flash forward to today, we have other tools and other technologies at our disposal. While we'll still use hydraulics sometimes for, for big, massive things, uh, we can do so much with electronics and microelectronics and electric motors um, literally packaged inside the arm itself. So no longer do we have to remote a power source or an energy source and kind of figure out how to route that down through, a, you know, a complex series of joints to get down into a, you know, an arm or a wrist. Now we can literally put the, the, the motors, you know, microelectronics, including all the software drivers and motor drivers that are required to, to, um, to manage those things inside the arm itself or inside the hand itself. Um, which gives us a lot more flexibility with how we build figures, a lot more modularity about how, um, you know, how we can put different parts and pieces together. The software that drives it is amazing today. We can now animate a figure exactly in the same way you would animate, a, you know, a figure for, for, uh, for film animation or, you know, using computer graphics and, and using the exact same tools and software. But now instead of seeing a character come to life on the screen, we see it come to life uh, right there in front of you. Uh, with a high degree of repeatability, a high degree of performability, and you know, and of course, many of the animatronics at Galaxy's Edge take advantage of those new those new techniques. And, and we're of course not done; we're continuing to invent more new cool things and find new cool ways to hopefully bring characters to life and make you believe that you're you know standing in front of some unbelievable character, whether it's human, animal, alien, whatever. And when you say repeatability, does that mean how many times like per hour one character can do a certain set of movements? Or is that within one showpiece, within one pre-show, something like that? Right. How much can be packed in? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's the answer is it's a little bit of both. So when you think about the, you know, the kind of the duty cycle, if you will, of some of these characters, they're performing their scenes you know, every 30 seconds sometimes, right? If it's in a ride setting or, you know, every hour if it's in a show setting. But it, it, there's a, it's a lot, right? And we want every performance to be perfect. So uh, over time, uh, especially with something like hydraulics where you're, you're relying on fluid dynamics and valves and very, very finicky adjustments, those performances of those valves can change over time. And literally with a hydraulic figure, the performance will change based on what time of day it is um, because of how hot and warm the oil is because the, you know, that the, the heat of the oil changes the density of Wait, the oil. Wait, I've never heard that before. Well, you know, <laughs> this is behind the scenes. This is how it works. Wow. Yeah, physics. They're like uh, us. Like at 3 p.m., they need a candy bar and another a, coffee. They need a little bit of jolt of something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so over time, you know, 
actually the, the kind of the performance can drift a little bit from the ideal um, with, with some figures that are either hydraulic or, or sometimes also pneumatic, meaning it uses compressed air instead of compressed oil. But with our electronic figures, our new generation of figures, there is no drift because they are constantly adjusting themselves to stay, um, you know, give that ideal perf perfect performance. And, and they, you know, even have a, a setup routine where, you know, you can kind of hit one button and the whole figure kind of recalibrates itself, um, physically recalibrates itself to make sure that it knows, you know, that, you know, when it says it's going to move this way and its arm is going to end up right there, that that's exactly what happens. Oh, wow. So the newer in audio animatronic gets kind of the longer duration it can go without anything going sideways. In theory, yes. I mean, some of the, <laughs> some of the very first electric, you know, very, very high performance, high performative electric figures we did, actually, we pioneered some of this techniques with a, um, with a replacement head for Abraham Lincoln at Disneyland in the great moments with, with, uh, with Lincoln show. And that innovated these new performative microelectronics as well as some new skin materials, some new elastomeric skin materials. And that used to be, where you might want to have to go in there like once a day to kind of tweak something or check on something. You can now change that to once a month and kind of go in there and kind of go. It, it, the other thing is because it is, no, now, it is now a very, very self-aware system, it will tell you when it needs attention, right? It will tell you that something is out of out of whack or out of calibration or something did something that was unexpected. Basically what I've just realized is we're building an army of self-aware robots. So I'm sure that's going to work what? out fine. It's going to be have you fine. Done? It's going to be fine. You are truly building the robot that will take your job. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, they're still not very smart, but, um, but they're very powerful. So we, we treat them very, very with, with love and kindness. And I mean, the, the great thing about Imagineering is we have this long history and legacy of creating of bringing characters to life, whether it's through drawings or whether it's through this kind of robotic animation or whether it's through any other, any other means. Um, and we've got some really, really amazing women and men who, you know, are working, you know, even today from home on what are, you know, what advancements we want to bring to the, to the, um, to the storyteller so that we can, we can actually create better, cooler, more immersive stories that allow you to connect with characters more in the way you would expect to, um, and it's just been part of, you know, our legacy going all the way back to, you know, Walt Disney himself. Wow. You really tied that one up with a bow. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's, it's something we take seriously because, you know, I I mean, know. <laughs> those are big, those are big footsteps to walk in. Right. Um, yeah. In terms of like, you know, a, it, when you think about it, the core of that is, you know, tell great stories but tell them in new and innovative ways that have never been done before. And right, you, you know, you can't, it, it's hard to think of somebody who's been more impactful in that than, than Walt Disney himself. And so today at Imagineering, we, you know, we, we continue that kind of legacy of innovation as much as we possibly can. Um, but they're big footsteps. Yeah. And kind of to flip that to the guest experience. So if you're visiting the park, you can kind of tell that a newer AA is is different from the older ones. But when you really drill down to it, like what is it about the most modern version of them that is different from the others? Is it that they can move their fingers in a different way? Like what sort of movements should people who are curious about this look towards sure. to tell the difference? Sure. I think the, 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 the short answer is it's a lot more moving things. So we as humans have this uncanny ability to recognize realistic human, or I'm going to say humanoid because anthropomorphic maybe is the right way to say it, anthropomorphic motion, expression, uh, body language, right? We have over eons evolved to recognize a smile from a frown, right? A, a you know, all the things that allow us to have social, you know, kind of interactions and, and not hit each other with sticks and rocks. The challenge in bringing that to life through these artificial means is that when something is a little bit off, we as humans really zero in on that thing. And it just, it's called the uncanny valley, if you're familiar with that, right? This kind of idea that you've got, a, you've got this, the closer you get to realism, the, the, the more challenging it is to get across this valley because the, the, the when you're looking at a cartoon of something, you don't expect it to be real. You forgive everything. But when you're looking at something that we, you want, your brain wants to believe is real, that's a real person in front of you, any little tweak, any little wrong thing, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that is, right? That is imperfect. Yeah. You know, the, the theory actually is that we evolved that 
to recognize um, disease and um, in, oh. in, in other people, right? Or that's, I should say, that's probably one of the theories. Um, and so that's why we're so uh, micro um, targeted to seeing those things that we just, our brain recognizes as off. Um, and today with our latest generation of audio animatronic figures, we're able to bring, to, to help bridge that valley by bringing more fidelity, more motion, more things into the performance of these robots. Whereas before we might've had three, we call them functions basically. Like, like think of, think of a, of a, let's, let's go back to our, our favorite president, uh, the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Originally he may have had, you know, roughly seven functions as we would say in, in that head. That's all that we could kind of mechanically package in there. So a mouth up and down, eyes, left and right, maybe eyelids opening and closing. And that's about all you could figure that you were going to, and maybe like the neck can, you know, can move. That's about all you could get in there. Um, but we have figures today that have 43 functions inside the head. So that means you can get a lip curl, you can get an, you can get an eyebrow squinch, you can get ear, you know, ears that just tweak a little bit. You can get all those little tiny nuances of performance out of these characters that just make them seem much more alive and seem much more human, even if they're an alien or an animal or a box. Generation to generation, like roughly how many new movements do they usually get? Like, is this, can this be compared to how you get a new iPhone and it's like a little glossier and there's new things and it just keeps being innovated? Or is this a big leap between generations? It really is a big leap, uh, not so much in the number of functions you can do, but in the kinds of functions we can do. So what what we used to be able to do, say a finger, you know, you could never, a finger's a small um, a motion. We would have to figure out how to take an, a, a motor that might be the size of a pack of, you know, um, I don't know, a, a, like a small um, soda can or maybe like a, the size of a couple of D-cell batteries, right? That would be the smallest motor you could get and find a way to package that. Usually would be somewhat up in the, hidden up in the arm where you have a little bit more, you know, volume and you then figure out some clever way with cables or wires or something to connect it to the finger. Uh, but there's only so many of those things you could do. So you couldn't fit five different, five five of those inside the arm and have all the stuff inside the arm. Today, we can literally put those motors down inside the fingers themselves, along with all the electronics, the drivers, the software that runs the motors. So all you have to do, you, you know, you can package that micro, those micro electronics all the way down into the fingertips. All you have to do is connect one simple cable and uh, that has data and power in it, connect that back to our new sophisticated operating system and, um, you know, and it all is basically one networked, um, one networked system now where the motors are all talking to each other. They're all talking to a centralized system, um, sending data back and forth using some, you know, um, uh, protocols similar to, or sometimes using like something called CAN bus, which is often used inside cars to transmit information inside, you know, very, very high speed information back and forth between say your, you know, your car's like brain and it's, you know, anti-lock brake system. Um, you know, a lot of data going real fast back and forth. So we built, we build those into the figures themselves now, as opposed to just, there's a, you know, there's a playback system sitting in some room, someplace, a, a ton of wires all come somehow coming up through, you know, a leg or something and then being distributed. It's a step change in what functions we can provide, how many functions we can provide and where we can put those functions. And it's often sometimes things as that you wouldn't expect. One of the limitations we had in the past was heat, heat buildup. Motors generate heat. Electric motors generate a lot of heat. You just can't do that day after day after day after day inside this sealed up, you know, kind of robotic figure um, without problems. And so yeah. even things as, as, as unintuitive as um, heat management to become very, very important. uttered the words Genie Plus knows firsthand that vacations require time, money, planning, energy. And if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already, why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with FrameBridge? Put that vintage Epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality. Surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room. 
FrameBridge makes it so easy and affordable to custom frame any photo, park map, or even cocktail napkin from a theme park hotel bar in just minutes. You can mock up exactly what it'll look like on their website before you even spend a dime. Things ship fast and they ship for free, and their colorful custom framing means they'll not only help you plan your gallery wall, but make sure your place looks cooler than the interiors of that mid-century modern home within Spaceship Earth. I love the mementos I framed with FrameBridge so much that I rearranged my entire office so I can enjoy them daily. This is not a bit. This is this is true life. They're the backdrop to my podcast Zoom interviews, my Instagram stories, and even the goofy photos we take of Pearl tip-tapping away at my keyboard like she's a miniature employee. Too often, our favorite memories of a vacation are tucked inside our phone or shoved within a drawer. And it thrills me to no end that because of FrameBridge, I can finally be surrounded by my memories. FrameBridge makes custom framing easy, affordable, and enjoyable. And on top of that, their happiness guarantee ensures that no matter what, you'll wind up with something you love. To get started, head to FrameBridge.com, because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's FrameBridge.com. Hello! It's me sliding into your audio DMs to warn you of caution! Spoilers for Rise of the Resistance are ahead! Again, timestamps are available in the podcast episode notes, so just pause it and check that out and scoot forward. Okay, now that they're gone, we are talking about my favorite moment of the entire Star Wars Rise of the Resistance experience, the escape pod. Many people who go on this attraction don't even know that that moment is going to happen. I'm so grateful that Scott was able to discuss this with me in a detailed fashion just to focus on how much effort went into pulling that moment off. And it's not even the bulk of the ride. Oh my gosh. I don't want to keep you from everything he has to say even further, but I just want to let you know, if you have ever wondered how that escape pod works, you're about to find out. I would love to talk to you specifically about the escape pod mechanism within Uh Rise of the Resistance. I realized that it's something that's not really discussed much, but is definitely one of the highlights of the attraction for guests. A lot of people are curious how it works, and it's so cool. Sure. Well, you know, again, maybe one of the reasons we don't talk too much about it is we want you to just have this experience where you're, you believe you're kind of jettisoning off a Star Destroyer on this escape pod. We don't necessarily, you know, want you to focus on the fact that this is three interlinking ride systems with a 70-foot drop tower in front of a massive, you know, set of projection screens, all of which are perspective eye-matched to your location and, you know, and all of that. We don't want you thinking about that. We just want you thinking like, you know, you know, Am I going to survive the, you know, this encounter with Kylo Ren? Am I going to become a hero of the resistance? Spoiler it's so funny. Alert. I think the listeners of this podcast want to be thinking exactly that. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, fine. So, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that w- when we started off to think about Rise of the Resistance, um, the, we, you know, we really kind of wanted to put you in the middle of this epic battle between the First Order and the Resistance. But, you know, we also wanted you to survive this and to be, you know, to be able to return back to the planet as a hero. So in thinking about, well, how are we going to get off of this, you know, how do we get off of this Star Destroyer and how do we, you know, how do we have that kind of climactic finale moment? We really felt like we wanted to do something visceral um, and not just screen-based. There's so many great experiences out there in the world that are solely screen-based. And, but, we, but that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted you to really feel, because I think you know the difference between when you're watching something that's purely screen-based and when you're in something, right? So the, the, uh, the crazy idea was, can we take this, 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 troop transport vehicle, this little eight-person trackless vehicle that's driven by this droid zipping around a Star Destroyer, can we put that inside a, uh, an escape pod and then have that escape pod kind of give you that, you know, that feeling of jettisoning and careening, you know, barely in control down to the home planet? And we realized, okay, well, the, the right way to do, I mean, we, we thought about uh, 50 different options, right? All of them more crazy than the next. Um, and then finally thought, okay, well, like this is going to be a complex thing to pull off. It's going to be an expensive thing to pull off, but it seems like the right way to do it is to take that track, this vehicle, mount it onto a motion-based type system, like 
like a Star Tours type system so we can have that longer flight down to the planet moment and then take that whole thing and mount it to a, uh, a controlled drop tower, uh, kind of like a Tower of Terror, you know, Guardian of the Galaxy Mission Breakout style uh, drop system to give you that weightless, almost weightless kind of like, you know, drop experience. Um, and yeah, so that seemed like a crazy thing to do, but it seemed like the right thing to do. So, so, so we did that. Um, you know, the, that's basically what that system is. It is a, it is a sandwich of three different ride systems where the trackless vehicle, you know, kind of locks into the motion base, which has, you know, with the cabin, the escape pod cabin on it with all the audio and lighting and special effects built into it. Um, that is mounted to a controlled drop tower, uh, all sitting inside a massive, you know, roughly 90 foot tall screen um, room with, you know, massive projectors kind of like providing the imagery and, um, and somehow it all works. How did you even go about pulling this off? Because you truly just shoved rides into rides (laughs) and then made it work. Um, well, it isn't easy, um, but we have, uh, we have, not only do we have amazing talent base at Imagineering to pull all this stuff off, but we have, an, we have amazing partners all over the world. Um, you know, parts of that system were made in, you know, in the U.S., parts were made in Europe, parts were made in Asia. They're, you know, and, it, and the, the one interesting thing is oftentimes they don't all come together until they get to the site. Um, and... Uh, you know, you're kind of like, I hope, all the, I hope everyone read the same drawings, right? I hope we don't have like one of those Stonehenge moments where it's like, you know, <laughs> wait, 18 inches? Oh, no. Okay. Um, but it all, it, it all worked. I mean, we did early on, actually, the, our, that, drop, that drop tower system was built in Germany. And so we had most of that put together in Germany uh, for testing. And, you know, so we could go actually into the, in, onto that tower but instead of the cabin, it was, you know, steel beams with, um, you know, like, like racing vehicle chairs welded to it. And we would wear VR headsets to go through the whole, that whole scene to make sure that we were getting the drop profile right, to make sure that we had the length of drop that we wanted. Um, so we, we were able to pretty much dial that in using uh, watching that whole, that whole scene in VR strapped onto a version of that tower in Germany before it got to the site. But you never know until, you know, it all gets there and you're weaving everything together to kind of like tune it into a, a real more, you know, more of a theatrical moment. You don't and know. That, yeah. That drop is so fluid too, because it's not, it's not this static pull in, stop, drop, stop. You're, you're truly, you're moving in so many ways. And mm-hmm. is that a testament to it being inside the motion simulator base? That's, on that or is that just because of how good the screen is like what what is the thing or maybe it's all of it that makes that moment so realistic right so we we have um part of it is just is just old school theatrical design and kind of knowing the the how kinematics work and how you feel motion so when you're when when that tower is dropping we're doing other things with the motion base to make you feel that slightly different things are happening than really are happening. It's all, it, there is a lot of psychology in that um, and how we kind of create the illusion of motion. Um, and that has just come out of lots of experience doing it and lots of talented artists who, who can use motion as their canvas um, and the feeling of motion, right? We just have some really amazing choreographers and programmers who understand that, you know, you, you know, you can't, you know, leaning back, you know, can feel like accelerating, right? Leaning forward can feel like braking. Um, sometimes when you, you, you might lean your body to the left, but the imagery you're seeing is leaning to the right, um, it can cause um, you to kind of feel like certain things are happening in transition that aren't really happening. It, it, is, it is more art than science. You, you'd think that you would just like have the motion do what the imagery does. And that would be a huge mistake because the artistry comes in understanding how to use the imagery as a part of the overall thing, but to not just have the motion be um, slaved to it, but to actually use the motion to accentuate. It's all input into the brain, right? And the brain is this great fabricator and synthesizer. That's where all the illusion happens. 
if, if you feel it's real, it is only real because your brain is, we've done enough tricks to the brain to kind of have the brain go, yeah, guess it's real. Guess I'm really on a Star Destroyer. Guess I'm really falling, right? Or at least to kind of trigger the little limbic responses that we know kind of, you know, will, will, will make you kind of suspend your disbelief and just go along for the ride. No pun intended. Is there any portion of that attraction or of the land as a whole that is extremely technologically savvy that maybe people would just be absorbed by how well the effect is done that they wouldn't even really clock it? One of my favorite things uh, to do uh, in the land is to watch people's reactions as ships fly overhead. Um, because, you know, spoiler alert, they're not really flying overhead, but we're able to do that with this amazing, literally thousands of channels of audio that make up the this whole the soundscape with which we can simulate the sound of a, of a ship that you would 100% believe just flew over. You, you know where it came from, you heard where it was going, you know where it went. Um, you just basically you just missed it. If you had looked up, you believe you would have seen it because of the convincing, you know, audio illusion. Um, you know, and we've, you know, amazingly talented sound designers like Gary Rydstrom spent hours and hours and hours sitting in the middle of the land in the middle of the night with a laptop and a card table, finessing all that. Right? I mean, it was all worked out, you know, and engineered um, in advance, but but. At the end of the day, it requires an amazingly talented artist like Gary sitting there and just kind of tweaking it and making it, you know, tuning it basically um, to make it work right. So, and again, all of that hopefully is not something our guests are necessarily thinking about. This podcast aside, our, our general <laughs> guests are not thinking about it. They're just thinking about like, oh, and they may not be, they might not even consciously notice it. It just sounds like the sounds of traffic in a spaceport. And you just kind of subconsciously go, okay, yeah, that seems right. Yeah, and so much work went into it behind the scenes. Yes, yes. Amazingly talented people. We're not done, right? I mean, pandemic aside, you know, the stories of Star Wars and the experiences of Star Wars in our parks is not done. You probably know we're very much moving forward with our next major um, chapter in that with the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser experience at Walt Disney World. That's, you know, we have teams working diligently both on site and in partner fabricators shops all over the country and even some around the world and even in our own mock-up facilities in Los Angeles and in, and in Orlando where that work is continuing. So that's going to be our next kind of major chapter that expands the stories of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It expands the stories of the Halcyon, that glamorous star cruiser. Yeah, we got, we got more coming. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is so exciting. These details are the type of things that are usually hard to find, and I'm so glad that I'm able to provide them. They, there is an audience for whom this is the coolest stuff ever. I, I count myself amongst that audience because, you know, always knowing like how the magician does the trick, you know, doesn't yes. for me, doesn't diminish the value of the skill in the illusion. It just makes me appreciate what went into it even more. So I totally get it. Trowbridge. He's one of us. Wasn't that fascinating? I feel like I learned, like my brain is awake. I was most surprised to hear that robots also get tired in the middle of the day. Solidarity with humanoid machines. I love it. Also, if robots take over the world, his army of self-aware ones are fully going to be to blame. You know that. And I, I kind of love it. We'll be back next week with our final look at how things work. But for now, let's check in on what's happening with the Churro Hotline. As you may remember, we discussed the grave heartbreak that comes from one of your favorite Disney foods being removed. I had a personal sad moment about my rice bowl. Oh, my rice bowl. I miss my rice bowl so much. And I asked you all to call in so we could collectively mourn our favorite no longer with us Disney foods. So here's a little in memoriam vis-a-vis -vis the churro hotline of our favorite foods gone too soon. This is Kate from New Jersey, and I was just listening to this week's podcast. And I also have a theme park favorite food that has fallen by the wayside. And that is my beloved beaver tails from the Canadian Pavilion. Cronuts from Taste Track. Those, oh my God, they're incredible.
Hi, Carly. My name is Nicole. I'm listening to the podcast on a road trip, and I literally had to pause in the middle of the episode to call and leave a voicemail to mourn my favorite theme park food that I cannot find anywhere anymore, the jalapeno cream cheese stuffed pretzel that you used to be able to get outside of Kilimanjaro Safaris and Animal Kingdom. The cupcakes from Mickey's Birthday Land. I know, I know. There are cupcakes all over Walt Disney World. You could probably build your own Cinderella castle with all of the ones you find on property, but these were different. For a while, Main Street Bakery had something very similar, but no more. And don't even come near me with the Starbucks version. Trash. The broccoli cheddar soup at the Bodine Restaurant and Pacific Wharf Cafe. The food I missed out of both parks, California Adventure and Disneyland was over at the Garden Grill. It was a Greek platter. Chicken kebabs and rice and tzatziki. And we are Greek food snobs. We are not Greek. We just know what we like. And I swear to you, it was one of the best Greek meals. Mango green pea slush in that little Julia pea kiosk in the China Pavilion at Epcot. This one isn't completely gone, but it's the cream cheese pretzel, which I haven't had since, like, last year. It came back to Hollywood Studios for, like, a day. Then I never saw it again. And now it's at Launchpad, but it's only there until 3. And then I walked up to the counter, and it was closed. When I tell you I was bawling on the monorail, I still have not had a cream cheese pretzel since last year. Both my husband and I terribly, terribly missed the pork shank from Gaston's Tavern. I don't know why they went away with it. It was a great deal, but it was delicious. And I think I ate it for three meals while we were there on our honeymoon a couple years ago. And I'm just super bummed that they even got rid of it. Thank you to everyone who called in and shared their sad stories. I know what it's like. I know what it's like when you go to the parks and you're like, oh, man, I wish they had my favorite food still. And they don't. And that memory haunts you and it stays with you. So I get it. I am right there with you. Solidarity in yummies. I feel your pain. In the Halloween spirit, though, I am able to resurrect one of your favorite foods from beyond the grave. That is the jalapeno cheese pretzel, which I believe is the one that one caller called about that is now currently for sale at Magic Kingdom's Lunching Pad. It goes by a few different names, but I'm almost positive this is the exact pretzel you are talking about. Just mind the schedule because Lunching Pad has some wacky hours right now. Now, but you can still find your pretzel on Walt Disney World property. And I hope you get it and it makes your day. Hey, Carly. Uh, this is Joseph. I wanted to just say, first of all, that I love your podcast. I know you hear that from everyone, but it is honestly an amazing podcast. And uh, yeah, so my question for you is what is your top five favorite nighttime spectaculars in both Walt Disney World and Disneyland combined? Um, so for me, I would say my top five would be Happily Ever After at Magic Kingdom, Fantasmic at Disneyland, because Disney World's version is old, dated, and sucked. Sorry, had to say it, had to say it, controversial, I know. Uh, number three, Remember, Remember Dreams Come True at Disneyland. Uh, number four, I would give to... I honestly, it's a favorite, but I, I don't remember the name, but the Mickey's Halloween Party fireworks show, the new one with uh, Jack Skellington at Magic Kingdom. And I would say number five would be Illuminations, even though I'm very excited for Harmonious whenever that happens. Um, so yeah, wondering what yours are. Feel free to even add parades. I didn't add any parades. I'll put paint on my number six, I guess. But um, yeah. Uh, anyways, have a great day. Hello, and thank you for this call. We are very much on the same wavelength with the way we like to spend our time at night. I want to add for anyone who is not deeply engrossed in all things theme park that currently nighttime spectaculars, for the most part, are on hold. There are a few things here and there. Universal did one nighttime showing this past weekend. Disney will be doing castle illuminations in the holiday season, but generally speaking, these items, these following shows are not currently available. Some of them for a long, long time and may never return. 
But you know what? I'm going to rank whatever I want. So number one for me is happily ever after. I am not a wishes person. I was never a wishes person. And happily ever after to me blew it out of the park. I say this constantly. I say it constantly. But my friend Alex and I watched happily ever after together. It must have been my second or third time. And it was her first. And she cried at it. And we were watching it through a tree. Like we could barely see the castle. We could maybe see 20% of it. And she still cried because it's that magical. It's so good. Happily ever after forever. Forever. Number two, right there with you. Fantasmic at Disneyland specifically. There is nothing like those vantage points. Oh my gosh. And Ah, just like surrounding the rivers of America. It's so enjoyable. And I really, really miss Fantasmic. I miss it. Now, number three is going to be Main Street Electrical Parade. I kind of wanted to do one, two, three, four, five, all Main Street Parade, but I can't because it's not, it has glowed away, as they say in the biz. And I'm still sad about it. I'm still mourning it. But God, what a good parade. What a good parade. Baroque hoedown, that music. Ooh, nothing, nothing gets me lit like that soundtrack. <laughs> now, number four, I got to give it to Paint the Night. It is so solid. I, I, I can't get over some of those show pieces. They're so good. I know that some people like Paint the Night more than Mainstream Electrical Parade, but whatever. And last but not least, my number five is Tree of Life Nighttime Awakenings at Animal Kingdom. I think that That show is so subtle and fits that park so well, but still is really impactful, especially because it's something you can hang around for and watch, or you can just catch it for a minute or two on your way out. And I think it's it's really nice to be able to absorb that right before you leave the park for the evening. It's such a special show. I I love it so much. So yeah, those are my top five. Um, I'm sure people will disagree with me, and I'd love to hear it. I know the wishes hive is going to come for me, but you know what? Happily ever after for life. Too bad. Aloha, cuz. Greetings from the sunny island of Oahu. This is Alumel. I'm calling to tell you that I'm a big fan of your podcast. You telling the hidden stories of the Disney parks has really enlivened my spirits during these difficult times. At least, that's what my friends Duffy and Shelly may tell me. I don't listen. I prefer a more cerebral, intellectual podcast like This American Life or The Daily but I guess some people like your little show. But my good friends, Joe Tony and Stella Lou, told me that you've been saying some not nice things about poor old Mel. I thought they were teasing me because I'm the new guy, but then a little birdie by the name of Tippy Blue told me that they were serious. You've been trash-talking poor old Mel for weeks. My heart's been broken. I'm just a kind-hearted turtle from the islands who made some new friends during hard times. And that makes you mad? I just played my melodies, and Duffy and all my new friends thought that was just kind. They even gave me my name, Olumel, because of my melodies. But now I'm singing a sad song. I love when you talk to chefs about all the Ono grinds at the Disney Resort and all those ghosts hiding out in the parks. Maybe I should go on Paul Shear's podcast to find out how this got made by such a meanie. And we have so much in common. I like the ocean foam, and you like pumpkin foam. I went to visit my friends at the Tokyo Disney Resort, and you went to Colorado. Oh, my poor little turtle heart aches thinking about how you could detest a sweet little Hanu with the spirit of aloha in his heart and music in his name. I may be cold-blooded, but it would warm my heart to be your friend. Well, let me tell you. If a former lifestyle reporter can go to a bachelorette party and just decide to become a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist, then a little turtle from Polynesia can surely sing his way into the hearts of Duffy and friends. So maybe say a hui-how to the track talk, Carly, or I'll start singing an angry song. And just like my friend Cookie always says, you don't with a lumel. Who did this? I am only playing this voicemail because it's Halloween, but I am truly scared. Like, is this how my version of Scream starts? Because that's what it feels like. I want to add this voicemail not only came through the Churro Hotline, but was also personally emailed to me from an Olumel Gmail address. I'm a little freaked out 
but I'm perhaps more frightened by the fact that this caller was dead on. Show me the lie. I mean, every single thing that this supposed turtle said was completely correct. Maybe I'm just being a bully. Maybe I'm rude. I have a lot to evaluate about myself after this call, but hopefully I stay alive long enough to be able to do so. Whoever you are, whoever wore a voice costume (laughs) to appear on the podcast this week, uh, I guess you're right for calling me out. I'm still a little wishy-washy on you or whoever you are representing. I I don't know who your big boss is, is it? Is it Olumel? Are you Olumel? I don't know. Either way, I'm slightly frightened, slightly under attack, and slightly going to own the fact that you are completely correct. And I will try to be nicer about Olumel. So long as I stay alive. Please don't kill me. That's our show! Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Scott Trowbridge from Walt Disney Imagineering for coming on the podcast. Having one guest is very chill, and I feel like I'm forgetting something in this section, but it's true. That's that's all we got. It's just Scott. The response to my mom's little addendum interview last week was extremely positive, and she is thrilled, so thank you all so much for the wonderful response. She's probably just going to show up on my doorstep now one day with 10 suitcases and say that it's what the people want, so thanks in advance for that. But really, since I started working in the travel space, I'd constantly be traveling with my mom, and it's weird that this year we're just in our homes, doing a whole bunch of nothing. So I can't wait for the day when her and I can finally go somewhere and you will get the full Audrey away from home experience because it is something. (laughs) The woman doesn't sleep. I don't understand. She has more energy than anyone. She, on the last night of every trip, will be up until 5.30 a.m. packing. Why? 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 And I, I... It frustrates me because I am the same woman. Like, I am turning into her. I have my little pouches with my little things. and uh, But it's still a good time. I mean, that woman will talk to anyone. She will do anything. She is game, and it is a blast. So one day, very amusing, uh, 2045, we will be coming to you from some live travels. Now, there were such fantastic, heartwarming Apple podcast reviews and ratings this week. So a massive, massive thank you to everyone who filled one out. I I need to thank you individually because it was too much. Thank you to Gitanel2, who was able to send their sister my podcast after being asked who Olumel is. JKMan77, EJOGS, followed by a zillion letters, HPFan78, Cat P. Faust, Disney Foodie Gal, Starsky07, Maggie May, New England Gal, KDKD, Pola.Buzz, Daisy E for writing a new review, writing a new review to say how much they loved my mom. Della Vange, Chrissy Cakes 13, Mary Momo, Whiskey Samson, The Mouse Egg. Mouse Egg, call the churro hotline. Don't be scared. It's fine. Like you said, new thing. You'll be fine. Deary83 and Jim Knobs, who never goes to theme parks but thinks learning behind the scenes stuff is cool. Okay, Jim. Welcome aboard. The reviews are truly the message board I didn't know I needed and love so much, so I think I'm going to start sharing them more often. You can add your own review and your own rating on Apple Podcasts. It is very appreciated. I don't know how algorithms work, but I'm told they matter, so you matter. That's the take-home. Remember to subscribe to Very Amusing because you'll get the pod earlier. It hits your feed first. And keep those churro hotlines calls coming! And if you are a Patreon, be sure to get your question in either through the hotline or on Patreon itself for our Thursday Churros Q&A. We have a separate written Q&A with different questions, different back and forths, and we even do one group question where everyone gets to respond and then I, I share some of the responses. This week's group question is about California grill, but I can't say the rest because it is private to our Patreon VIP party. So if you want to get in on the giggles, find us there. It's at patreon.com slash Carly or just Google it, which is the blessing of no one else having my name. Follow me on social media at Carly Wiesel on Twitter and Instagram and join my Facebook group. I am online all day and I will happily distract you from the stuff you have to do and don't want to do because that's how I live my life. That is my purpose on earth to keep you 
from doing your expense reports. That's basically it. Now, this past week, I was on Alison Rosen's podcast, which was a blast. And she was so great at saying these phrases like, follow me and Patreon without curling up into a small grave and burying herself alive like I often want to. So I'm trying to channel that energy. And I hope that's coming through even as I'm sitting here being like, I just asked so many things of these people and I just gave them so much information. I can't do it. So I apologize. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's the best we can do in 2020. Very Amusing is edited warm-heartedly by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hi, it's me again. I have to tell you, honey, I'm very tired. It's late. But I wanted to tell you that I've listened to the podcast like two and a half times because I'm very tired. I can't finish the rest tonight. But I have to say it was such a good episode, not just because you and I were on it, but it was so good and I learned so much and I think dad is going to really get into that born thing. So um, I just want to say thank you for having me on. I have had such a fun time tonight going on Facebook and seeing whatever all your family friends have written about me and you doing the podcast. It just warmed my heart. I'm so happy and so grateful to you and all your family friends. I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, sweetheart.